0: Man, Welcome. Welcome. Again, we are we're thrilled that you're here today. I, I, I believe I just need to say this again because there may be somebody that's just, um, I don't know, maybe you're just a little down. Uh, maybe you — it just took every ounce of energy you had to get to church today. And I just want you to know, God bless you. He loves you. Uh, He is for you, He is not against you, and uh, we are absolutely thrilled that you're here. We want to worship the Lord with you. We want you to join us as we make much of Jesus, as we make much of the Scriptures, as we worship, as we talked about last week, not only with our minds, may it be a theological and a doctrinal experience, but also may we worship Him with our emotions and with our heart, our very wills and volitions. So today, this text, Revelation 17. 6 through 18 I think in my humble opinion this is the hardest passage of scripture I will ever preach in my entire life I tell you it is it is fraught with so many similes and metaphors and, and analogies and if we're not careful it would be easy to fall into the temptation of being absorbed in the metaphors and we forget the primary message and I don't want us to do that today in fact I come with great humility. I I should always come with great humility when I preach, but especially today — and I'm reminded of the words of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, that great pastor in England in the 19th century. He would walk to the pulpit. Every Sunday that he made his way up to preach, he would say these words, I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what he would say. I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I do too. And it's not by might. It's not by... My power, but it's by His anointing and His power that we're able to read the Word of God, to study it, and to preach it. Remember, the title of the book is the in the Greek, it's the word apokalupsis. It's a compound word. Apo means from, and kalupto means to veil. And so, apokalupsis literally means, and by the way, that is where we get our English word apocalypse. It means to take the veil from. It means literally to reveal. And in my Bible, I love this at the um, At the beginning of the book of Revelation, it says these words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so the book is preeminently about Him. It's not about the woman that we're going to study today or the seven-headed beast with ten crowns and and so forth, and all that's very fascinating. And when we study that today, I I want us to go down deep and I want us to try to understand what the seer, S-E-E-R, the seer, the prophet The man of God, John, what he received on the island of Patmos around A.D. 95, and by the way, he's about 95 years of age, and God has a climactic, wonderful ministry. By the way, this same John who wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, he also wrote the gospel that bears his name, is the same author of these 22 chapters that we call the Apocalypsis or the unveiling of Jesus Christ. In my study Bible, I came across this just this week, and I want to read this to you. It says these words, that which is unveiled or revealed in the apocalypse is preeminently the glorified and enthroned Christ. The future of kingdoms and movements, yes, they will be unraveled or they will be revealed, but at the heart of all is the conquering Christ. End of quote. I want you to remember that. I want you to keep that in mind. Because as we go to Revelation 17, and go ahead there with me if you will, we're going to read 7 through 18, and just take a deep breath, especially when we get to this woman and this, and, and, and this, this beast. And by the way, this is a metaphor. This is, this is an analogy. It's not literally a woman. This woman was so large, she sat on nations and kingdoms and, and tribes. So we know it's not a physical, literal woman. And this beast has seven heads and ten crowns, so we know it's not some, uh, something of the animal kingdom. We see John see something. And the best he can with, with metaphors and language, he writes it down so that the subsequent generations of believers until Jesus comes again, we can study this. And by the way, if I haven't already said it, let me say it again. I'm coming to you with great humility. I'm going to share with you what I believe this text means. And there are some that would absolutely disagree, those that see this text has already been fulfilled in more of a preterist or historical position. They don't see it like I do, see it more as a future. But I'm telling you, there's so much here. I, I'm not going to be overly dogmatic. I'm just going to say this is what I believe. Are y'all with me? You, you with me? How would you like to preach this text? <laughs> I mean, it's intense. It's amazing. So he so let's read it. Let's look at it. But the angel said to me, John, why do you marvel? Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery, the mysterion. remember, mystery in the Bible refers to that which is hidden, but only God can reveal. Okay, you with me? Mystery, mysterion, is something that is hidden from the human eyes that only God can reveal. And, and, the, and the angel says, I'm going to tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her the beast that has seven heads and ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not, and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to destruction or perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel. Those whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see that the beast who was and is not and yet is." And remember chapter 13, we've already talked about this. The beast, the Antichrist, who was, And he is, and he died. And there is a future-coming, charismatic, amazing man that's going to sweep across this world with great popularity and eloquence, and somebody's going to try to kill him. And in some mock resurrection, some empowerment of the evil one, this guy's going to come back to life and say, look at me, you think Jesus was something, look at me. And the world will fall down prostrate and worship him. That's the beast who was and is and now He is to come. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. So there you know we're not talking something literally. Amen? No woman can sit on seven mountains. Amen. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come, and when he comes he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth, and is of the seven, and is going to perdition. It's okay. You say, I'm confused as I possibly can be right now. At this very moment, I'm absolutely confused. It's okay. I am too. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not. I'm not. No, I'm with you. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings, and they have received no kingdom as yet. Okay, future. But they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb." Now the lamb is not a literal physical animal, right? The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, uh, we already know who that is very clearly. That is Jesus Christ. And this legion of armies with the Antichrist and the kings of this world are going to make war with the lamb. And the Lamb will overcome them." Say that with me. The Lamb will overcome them. That really is the heart of this message. If you don't get anything else, remember the unveiling, the revealing is Jesus Christ, His preeminence, His awesomeness. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. No one can stand against Him. He always conquers His foes and His enemies. And let me just say this. If God can do that cosmically, if God can do that in end times, if God can do that globally, what can God do personally in your life? That same God can do anything in your life. That's just a good word. I want you to hold on to that, okay? We'll come back to it. And so these will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will—Nike is the Greek word, Nike. He will overcome them. Why? That's my interjection. Why? Because He is the King of kings, and He is the Lord of lords. And those who are with Him—notice that little prepositional phrase—those who are with Him, we are called— chosen and faithful, praise the Lord. If you're called, that means you're chosen and you are faithful. How do you know if you are really saved and, you, and you're on your way to heaven because you've been called, you've been chosen by God, and you live it out? You are faithful to the King. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw, which the harlot — by the way, the harlot is another name for the woman — where the harlot sits, these are peoples and multitudes, nations and tongues and the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire." No, this is not cannibalism. This is not a physical eating of some woman's flesh. Remember all the metaphors. This means total annihilation and destruction of this woman. For God, oh my word, look at verses 17 and 18, God's in control of all of this. You know, God is so sovereign, John says, He has put it into their hearts to fulfill His purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So today we're going to look at the key personalities in this passage of Scripture, and really there are three. There is this woman, we're going to look at her identification, And then we're going to look at her demise or her destruction. Number two, there is this beast. He has seven heads, he has ten horns, and we're going to analyze more about this coming world leader, this Antichrist, who's going to have dominion over the peoples of this world. And then thirdly, and I think most importantly, are the saints of God. And we're going to look at the victory we have in Jesus, and we're also going to look at God's absolute supreme authority. Now, having said all that. These key personalities, we've got the woman, we've got the beast, and we've got the saints of God ruling above all personalities and all peoples preeminently. This book is about Him, about Jesus Christ. Okay, so please keep that in your mind. Okay, so let's walk through the text, and we're going to look first of all at the woman and her identity. And last week, I shared with you about who this woman was. It's not literally a physical woman, but it is... <clears throat> an apostate religion. She represents really a religion that has always existed because whenever you have the true — hold on just a second — just bear with me. This woman that we looked at last week is not a physical woman, but she, is a, she represents an apostate religion. Apostate religion has always existed since the time of Babel in Genesis 10 all the way through the end of the age. There will always be the true, real, one religion, and then there will be the false or the pseudo, and that's what she represents, as we've noticed in chapter 17, this apostate religion. I've described it as this syncretistic amalgamation of all religions. Syncretism simply means to pick and choose a little bit from every religion. Amalgamation means just to put them into one, and you have this supreme, amazing, one world religion except one, and that is Christianity. It rises itself above all the other religions in the coming age, and it will make war with this one true religion of Jesus Christ. So we see her destruction in verse — in in, in the whole pericope that we read, we see how she's going to be destroyed. But remember the key word of this woman in verse 5 is her name is mystery, her name is Babylon. And so she's connected to a city with a system or influence. The city, I believe it's going to be this rebuilt Babylon on the Euphrates River. I really do. Is that so far a stretch of imagination? every day you open up your newspaper or you open up your, uh, your internet or your television, and we're always talking about Iraq, we're talking about the Middle East, I think somehow there's going to be this movement to rebuild this Babylon in the coming days and years ahead, and somehow she will have her reign and rule from this city on the Euphrates. Remember verse 18 it says, she is intrin- intrinsically tied to a city. Dr. Robert Thomas says this, and listen to these words. It is better to see the woman to be the whole anti-Christian religious system of the future that will be bent on seducing the world's population away from the true religion. John's angel guide quite clearly alludes repeatedly to Babylon on the Euphrates throughout chapters 17 and 18. So the woman will be a religious system connected to that city. That's her identification. But number two, more importantly, is her destruction. Verse 16 says she is going to be decimated. She's going to be dismantled. And in this graphic language that John uses, he says these ten kings with their ten horns riding on this beast and these seven heads, they're going to come against her and they're going to make her naked. They're going to expose her moral corruption. The phrase, eat her flesh, as I said earlier, it's not so much a cannibalism as it more is a graphic description of her utter destruction. And then it says, they will destroy her by fire. No, not literally, but it just goes back to the point that John is saying, whatever this is, whatever this woman is, I believe she is this apostate religion, For a while, she will be in bed with the Antichrist. In fact, it says that she will be riding on top of him. Now there's disagreement as to what that means. Does that mean that she is um, being supported by the Antichrist, or she actually has supremacy over him? Well, I don't know, but this much I do know that there's coming a time where he will come out from under her and bring his legion of armies against this apostate religion, and here's what he's going to demand. He's going to demand that every single solitary soul in the world bow down and worship him. And his false prophet will be making sure that you better have the mark of the beast, the Antichrist, on your arm or on your head. And if you do, that means you give an allegiance to this one world future charismatic dynamic leader who is the devil himself, and because you worship him, you're able to eat, You're able to buy food, you're able to live in this one world government, and then he's going to have enough of this woman and religion. He's going to tolerate religion for, for a while. He will turn against her, and now we move into his reign, the beast. Let's look at him. The beast in verses 8 through 14 and 17. So important. Don't forget that he's going to have this mock death and resurrection, which is going to sway the world. Listen. Our world is ready for this. We are so ripe for this. We're so looking for, man, who's going to rise up and settle what's going on in Iraq? Who's going to rise up and settle this global economy? And who's going to rise up? Somebody that, that, you know, that we can touch and feel and that we can give our allegiance to. And here He is. He will rise up, and He will be everything that everybody ever dreamed of in a man. And he will make all these grandiose promises, but underneath he is really this deceptive, hideous beast. And when he dies and comes back to life, it will be amazing. And it says, those whose names are not found in the book of life will worship the beast. Those whose names are not written from the foundation of the world. Listen, by the way, God's got all of this. He knows everything that's going to happen. He is ultimately, He will, He is winning, and He will win. And God has a book, by the way. He does. He has a book. And in that book of life, your name is in there or your name is not in there. Some of you are saying, you're scared of me. How do I get my name in there? Well, there is a way you can get your name in there. And the only way you can get your name in the book of life is really nothing that you can do to earn it. All you have to do is say, Jesus Christ, I believe that you are it. You are almighty God. You died for me. You arose from the dead by your Holy Spirit Come into my life. I want to be in that book, and you're in, okay? You are called. You are chosen. You are in, and God knows that. If you reject him, your name is not in the book of life and you're going to be deceived as you're being deceived now. Some of you with arms crossed, you got this look of (laughs) disgust. This is ridiculous. How how can anybody believe in in such a fairy tale and a myth and a story? Who could ever believe one world government, one God ruling over all? You've got to be kidding. Well with an attitude like that of hubris. And arrogance, you're demonstrating your name is not in the book of life. You're not born again. Because people who are really born again of the spirit of Jesus Christ, are always humble. They're always teachable. They're always saying, I'm not God's gift to the universe. I'm just a mere mortal. I'm just a mere woman. I know the God of the universe. He is awesome, and I submit my will to His will. That's what it means, I think, when he says later, they're called, they're chosen, and they are faithful. Faithful. The beast. Let's look at these seven heads. What in the world does that mean? Many people believe, and still many people today, with a more preterist position, believe that the seven heads are the seven hills of Rome. It's no mystery that Rome was built on seven literal mountainous hills. And people see that, well, those seven heads somehow is connected to Rome. Other people believe, no, these these seven heads somehow refers to the Roman Catholic Church. There are people who believe this. They believe that the Roman Catholic Church is part of the seven heads who is been deceived and they're going to be a part of this one world religion. I don't believe that. I like what one writer put. This is John MacArthur, by the way. He says, something more than Rome has to be in view because, listen to this, Antichrist empire is worldwide. It's not just Rome, it's worldwide. He goes on to say, nor can the woman be the Roman Catholic Church since, verse 18, uniquely identifies her with a city. So she is part of a city, part of a system. So what do these seven heads represent? I believe they represent the seven succeeding empires from the beginning of time. Think think with me for just a moment. The major empires of this world, there are five. Six, there's coming a seventh and an eight. Let me see if I can remember my history here. Okay, so first of all, there would be Egypt, then Assyria, then there would be Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, and the Greeks, five who were, okay, five who were. And the one that is, is Rome, which is in John's day, is Rome. The seventh one will be the coming reign of the Antichrist. And John says, don't be confused by this. He says the Antichrist is part of the seventh, but he's also part of the eighth. And so somehow he is connected with the seventh and the eighth um, system or or heads or or mountains. I know this is fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. So this is the the seven heads. Now, by the way, this is not unusual. When you read Daniel chapter 7, you've got beasts referred to both kings and uh, kingdoms. All right? Verse 11 says, another king, and he is the eighth. Who is he? He is this Antichrist. And Pastor Adrian Rogers says this, and I love this quote, this seventh beast is the one that will go into the grave. And when he comes out of the grave, he will be the eighth. He will enter the grave as a human, but he will arise as a superhuman, and this is the Antichrist." End of quote. So, you may say, well, I still think it's somehow tied to the past. I believe it's somehow tied to the seven hills of Rome, and, and maybe it's the, the Nero myth. There's a myth that Nero died and came back to life. And some of y'all may be saying, I believe it's that, Brother Danny. I believe it's more in the past, but I respectfully disagree, and I think it's more of the future. And it represents those succeeding kingdoms that are all going to be coming together in, in one kingdom of this future world leader. That's the seven heads. What about the ten horns? This is a little easier. Amen. <laughs> a little easier. The ten horns are the ten kings who have their ten crowns. Look at these key words. They have not yet received their kingdom. Their kingdom is a future kingdom from John's day. I don't think they are in existence today, though they may be. Verse 13 says, these kings will be of one mind and one purpose. They will give their authority to do two things. They will kill the woman and they will prepare to kill the lamb." Let me say that again. That is very important. They're going to do two things. This, Some people believe it's the European Union or a remade European Union, and they're going to come together, and they're going to give their allegiance to this world leader, dynamic, charismatic leader, and they're going to do two things. They're going to get rid of this religion. For once and for all, let's just do away with religion. Who I mean, religion is just useless. Do away with it. And as you're following me, by the way, we've done away with all these religions. Now let's get the main religion, and let's get this Jesus Christ. And so they will give their allegiance to Him. Dr. David Jeremiah says, while some throughout history have tried to bring back the power of a Europe united under the authority of Rome, it has never happened. But one day, it will. One day we will see a coalescing of nations which will bind together in some sort of unified block of nations under the leadership of the Antichrist. This ten-nation confederacy will reign over all the earth during the latter part of the tribulation." End of quote. So, these ten kings, uh, ten rulers... Reigning monarchs will give their allegiance to the Antichrist, do away with the woman, and prepare to do away with the lamb, but there's only one problem. You can't do away with him. You can't defeat him. He's indefatigable. He's undefeatable. He is the one who really died and really rose from the dead. He is the one who does not deceive. He is the one who is true love incarnate. He is the one... When you extrapolate His religion, when you take the religion that He founded, when you take it to its uttermost and you extrapolate it, you don't blow people up, you love them and serve them. He is the one true God. His name is Jesus Christ. It is not Muhammad. It is not. When you extrapolate his religion to the nth degree, you get jihad every single time. But when you stretch this religion to its core, in its purest form, it's love, it's service. I was reading just this week, and this is, gonna, this is probably going to get me in trouble. I'm going to say it. There are two very diametrically opposed competing ideologies in the world today is Christianity and Islam. Most of the world don't see it that way. Most of the world sees it as, you know, there's a third option. It's called secularism, paganism, hedonism, which by the way, our city is deeply entrenched in. They're not deeply Islamic, and they're certainly not deeply Christian, amen? But they are deeply hedonism secularism, paganism, pluralism, inclusivism, praise God one day all the isms will be wasms, and I'm looking forward to that day. <clears throat> Not original, but I read that somewhere. But this is what Al Mohler taught me this week, and I was, this is where I got this from. He says what people don't realize is an insipid, weak, materialistic, inclusivistic, Paganism can never really overcome and do battle against a rampant jihadism. There's only one thing that can conquer it, and it's the love of Jesus Christ. I believe it, and I believe that we are in a battle of all battles. This may not be the end game battle. There may be another 100 years, 200 years before Jesus comes again. I just don't think so. So let's look at the saints of God. First of all, victory in Jesus. Verse 14 is my favorite verse in all of it. It says the Lamb will overcome. Why? Because He's King of kings, and He's Lord of lords. And this Lamb of God, as portrayed not in the Quran but in the Holy Bible, says this. Jesus Christ will come with His saints. He will destroy the Antichrist. He will set up His kingdom. He will reign for a thousand years. I believe that. But there is a belief in Islamic eschatological teaching that goes like this. And by the way, what I'm about to say to you comes from Islamic scholarship. These are brilliant men. And I have read them, and I have studied what they've said, and here's what they teach. They believe there's coming a day there is going to be a caliphate, and there's going to be a ruling Islamic world, and there's going to come an anti-messiah and he is going to come and fight against the Muslim world. He will fight against them so successfully, coming from Iran, and he will defeat all but 5,000 of the caliphate. This person, the anti-messiah's name is Dajjal, D-A-J-J-A-L. That's what he'll be, he'll be the Dajjal. The battle will be won in Dabiq, Syria. Okay. There's a battle coming, and the Muslims are going to overcome until this Dajjal comes. This anti-Messiah will come, and he will begin to defeat all of those Muslims. Until you get down to about 5,000 of them, you back them into a corner, and just when the Dajjal is about to obliterate Islam, they teach that a Savior, somebody is coming to rescue them, and His name is Jesus what they believe. They believe Jesus will come, do away with the anti-Messiah, and he will join in with the Muslims and allow the Muslims to conquer the world. That's what they teach. That's what they believe. But you know what? They are dead wrong. Jesus Christ is not coming back to help the caliphate. By the way, they say Jesus is second only to one, Muhammad. There's one God, Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. Jesus is just okay with me. He's number two. He's going to come again and help us. I'm telling you, in Jesus' name, that's not true. Jesus is not second to nobody. He's King of kings. He's Lord of lords. And man, when He comes... He comes and he, he reigns. He reigns with His people. You say, Brother you've bumped your head somewhere. You've read too much theology. Read it. They teach it. They believe it with passion in this eschatological return of Jesus Christ to help the Muslims to victory. But the Bible says He is coming with His saints, with Him, and those who are called, chosen, and faithful will be in His royal train. It's interesting because he says they're called, they're chosen, and they're faithful. And by the way, God already knows this. God has predestined. God has elected. God knows who's are His, and He knows who's not His. And God just knows. I believe God knows based on His foreknowledge, based on what we will do with our choice. Other people disagree with that. They say, Brother Dan, I respectfully disagree, It's just didn't really worry about us. It's just it's written. We're either in or we're out. But we are — hey, listen, let me say this again, let me say this again, so we'll encourage you. If you're worried about whether you're the elect or not, you probably are, okay? If you're worried about, well, you know, am I part of the elect? I mean, really, have I — do you believe in Jesus Christ? Have you given your life to Him? Are you serving Him? Are you walking in fellowship with Him? Well, welcome to the elect then you're part of Him. If you're not, you're not called and chosen. Here's how I know you're not called and chosen, because you're not faithful. You're not walking with Him. You say, well, wait a minute, I I came forward in a Baptist church, I I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and I went up there and I got baptized, and now I don't believe hardly any of that anymore, (laughs) amen. I got better things to do in my life, (laughs) amen, and I don't really have time to come to church and God forbid me give any dime of my money to that church, and I'm just going to do what I want to do because Jesus is just all right with me. You're going to hell. You're going to hell, okay, because if you're called and you're chosen, you're gonna be faithful. Man, when the church doors are open, you wanna be there. When it's time to get baptized, you wanna get baptized. When the offering plate is passed, you're like, I'm giving my money because I know the Lamb of God and it's not a bore, it's not a chore, it is my sheer, utter delight to serve the King. You're chosen, brother. You're in, you're in the family of God. These are the faithful ones. They're, by the way, there's not many. Jesus said, the last will be first, the first last. Many are called, few chosen. Read the next one, Matthew 20, it says, many are called, few are chosen. 93 percent of Austin lost, a remnant of people. And by the way, this is in Texas. You know what the numbers are in Portland? (laughs) Portland, Oregon. You know what the numbers are in Maine, in Rhode Island? It's horrible. Many are called—listen, I believe salvation is for all. I do. John 3, 16. But most say thanks, but no thanks. It's not that you don't understand Jesus. You understand Him, and you don't want Him. Just like John chapter 6. It helps me understand these words of Jesus. This to me is the most haunting words from the lips of our Lord. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only he who does the will of my Father. It's not a works religion, but praise God if you're saved, you're going to work. Listen, And you're going to enjoy it. You, you will enjoy the work. You'll enjoy serving serving Him. Okay, so let's look at the sovereignty of God. Verse 14, now in verse 17, it, again, it just, it just blows my mind. Everything that's happening is under His control. <laughs> he's, he's putting all the pieces together. He's letting all these things transpire precisely as He said He would. I know it's easy to get discouraged. It just looks like people are rushing into hell, headlong, full of pride, full of their open-mindedness, all their brains have fallen out, but they're just just rejecting, and and they don't want to hear it, and they're resistant, very recalcitrant. And and we would think, man, am I right? I mean, man, is Jesus really the only way? I mean, man, if that's true, why is this so hard? And Jesus said, remember this, they hated me. They killed me. And you think you're going to get different treatment? Jesus said that, by the way. But hear hear this word. Monday night, I'm standing in that great hall, and I'm preaching my heart out to a group of pastors and wives. And they are from all over the world. They are Asian pastors and wives. Man, it was a sweet time. Y'all, I I about went off on y'all. I about went Baptist on you. I was just praising the Lord And I was just worshiping him. They were singing these songs. This this Asian young people band were up there, and man, it was just glorious. And I got up and preached. Let me think what I preached on. Oh, I remember what it was now. And then after I preached, I sat down, and this young couple went up to the pulpit, and I was like, this is going to be interesting. This lady gets up, she says. says her name. Beautiful couple, beautiful young lady and her husband. They're probably like 35, 40 years of age. They look like they're like 20. And they're standing there, and they said, we are from Pakistan. And I said, oh. They said, we are followers of Jesus, and we have been shot at. We have been chased, pursued, persecuted. We got out barely with our lives in 2012. Okay? We lost everything. And when they were talking, I was like, why was I speaking? Why don't we just let them speak? You ever felt that way? Why, why, why are they listening to me? I've, I've experienced any of that. And she said, and here's what happened to us. We lost all of our automobiles, all of our clothes, our home, our possessions. We lost everything for the gospel. But before we left, this is what we did. We planted 650 house churches in Pakistan. So we built 35 Christian church buildings, and I went up to the dad afterward the next day, and I said, whoa, how do you, what do you mean? He goes, oh, sir. And guys, this is so good for us to hear this. Christianity is doing all right in the world. God is saving Muslims through dreams and visions. He's healing Hindus. I mean, people are coming in droves in Christ. We don't see it here. Because we're so anti-supernatural, so empirical, so rational, we're so full of our stinking selves, we can't see the glory and the miraculous intervention of God, but they're seeing it in other places. And the pastor told me, he goes, oh, pastor, he said, we built these buildings, he said, because the government don't care. It's just the jihadists, the militant ones, they're the ones that care, and they're the ones we have to look out for. And I heard that, I thought, God, thank you. If there ever come a day and a time in America, would I be willing to lose everything and follow Christ? And I'd like to say I would. Wouldn't you you like to say "I, I would? I think I would. But I don't know until I'm in the moment. I'm in that crucible in that moment. And by God's grace, I want to say, yes, Lord, come what may. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes, and I want you to think with me for just a moment. Have you been called? Are you chosen? Are you the elect of God? Let's answer that question today, it's just too important. The answer is seen in the behavior. Now listen, I'm not talking about perfectionism. God forbid that I should stand up here and say, if you're really a Christian, you're going to be perfect, and you're never going to sin. No, I know. That's not it at all. And that's not what Jesus is talking about. That's not what John's talking about. But there is a consistency. There is a, there's at least a desire. And, and when you fall and when you mess up, you say, God, I'm sorry, and, and you get back in the game, that, that's a different thing than just, well, I just filled out a piece of paper. I got baptized. I'm saved. Everything's good. I'm just going to live the way I want to live. No. If you're here today and you've never surrendered your heart to Christ and been born again by His Spirit, I invite you to do that this very moment. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart. God raised Him from the dead. Accept Him. Believe on Him. As the Spirit of God draws you to Himself, Jesus said nobody can be saved unless the Father draws them. Is He drawing you? Is He drawing you? If he is, this is what it's going to look like. You're going to be a little uncomfortable because your sin is going to meet the power of God, and you've got to surrender. You've got to yield your life to His, and I invite you to do that right now. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not trying to intimidate. I'm just saying, there is a good and there is an evil, and if you're not on the side of the good, you will fall prey to the evil. So I invite you today, give your life to Christ. I implore you, I beseech you, I beg you. Father, I pray now, as we sing the song and make our way out of this beautiful sanctuary, that we will go with a song on our lips with a joy and a, and a quickening of our hearts, saying, "Praise be to the Lamb." But Lord, before we go, we want to give people an opportunity to say yes to you. Lord God, as we stand in a moment, may you draw them by your holy Spirit, and may there be people who would say yes to the Messiah, to the one true King. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet. God bless you as you stand. Stay with us. Stay with us a few more minutes. Sing this song unto the Lord. We've got counselors and pastors, deacons up here. We'll pray with you. They'll encourage you. God bless you. Come on.